Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the curated links from damninteresting.com, break them down and give you all the news you need to know to sound really smart at a party. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. On UPI.com, we finally have a little bit of science to tell us what we've already known, which is that longer work hours lead to heart disease, stroke, and even death. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> the World Health Organization and the International Labor Organization said that people who work long hours, which is defined as more than 55 per week, are at a greater risk of ischemic heart disease and stroke than those who work normal work weeks. So across the globe, about 488 million people in the year 2016 were exposed to long working hours, and the exposure had 745,194 attributable deaths and 23.3 million in disability-adjusted life years from ischemic hmm. heart disease and stroke. The attributable disease burdens were estimated by applying the population attributable fractions to the World Health Organization's global health estimates of total disease burdens. It's pretty jargony, but they noted that the COVID-19 pandemic has obviously blurred the boundaries between home and work a lot more. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of businesses have also been forced to scale back or even shut down operations to save money, which means everybody who's still on the payroll is going to be working longer hours. So, you know, their very vague recommendation is that governments, employers, and workers need to work together to agree on limits to protect the health of workers. So we can expect that kind of update to happen probably never. Oh, yeah, right away. Yeah. <laughs> the one way you could get it is if the insurers told the employers, we're not giving you medical insurance through your employer unless you somehow can promise that your employees never work more than 55 hours a week. Right. Or like, you know, if your insurance is basically like, ah, oh, well, this is a work-related injury, you know, that whole thing, it's a whole separate question of who pays for it when it's a work-related injury. Yep. Capitalism still ruining the party, though. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from newatlas.com, and it's titled, How an Extra Thumb Changes the Way Your Brain Perceives the Hand. Whoa. Yeah. So a few years ago, a London-based designer named Danny Claude introduced the world to the third thumb, a novel robotic finger controlled using pressure sensors under one's feet. Hmm. Tamir McKean, head of the Plasticity Lab and lead author on the new research, explains, Body augmentation is a growing field aimed at extending our physical abilities, yet we lack a clear understanding of how our brains can adapt to it. So the researchers recruited 20 subjects who each spent five days training in the lab to use the third thumb. And by the way, this thing kind of just looks like a plastic gray thumb that's attached to the other side of your hand opposite where your thumb is. Okay. The subjects were encouraged to take the device home with them each evening and try to use it for between two and six hours in total per day. And I mean, I don't know about y'all, but personally, I can't really think of what I would use another thumb for. But I, I would totally mess around with it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, for me, it would be an injury hazard because the only thing I really do with my hands once I go home is cooking. 
And so uh, I yeah. like holding a knife. Or I don't know that I want to hold a knife with an extra no, plastic. Yeah, that sounds like a recipe to go to the ER. Yeah, I think it would just end up hanging off the edge of the handle anyway. But I yeah. guess you could pick up like extra amounts of food if you're eating French fries or something. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> Shovel it in faster. That's what I need. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> what the thumb is for. So... At the beginning and end of the study, all participants were scanned using MRI to track brain activity while moving their fingers. A control group of 10 participants were also recruited. They completed the same five-day training protocol but used a static version of the third thumb. The researchers discovered after just five days of using the third thumb, there were significant changes to activity in the brain responsible for hand representation. So to use a hammer, for example, we simply grip the tool tightly with our hand, and our brain still understands the shape of our hand and five fingers. But after just five days of using the third thumb, brain activity associated with each finger had become less distinct. Hmm. Polina Kiliba, first author on the study, explains, In our lab, we have been looking at hand representations for a while now, and we usually see hand representation remain very stable. For example, even after the most profound change to the hand, arm amputation, the representation of the amputated hand remains stable in the brain. Hmm. So to see it change after only five days of using the third thumb is not trivial to us. A follow-up MRI conducted one week later revealed these sensor and motor changes had returned to normal. Kiliba says this swift change back to normal neural hand representation could also be related to the short time frame of the study. This particular aspect of the research needs much more investigation as there could be major implications for safety if body augmentation devices permanently change the brain's ability to control the body. Mm. Kiliba asks, would people wearing extra arms for a prolonged period of time, for example, while working in the factory be able to efficiently readapt to their natural body movements when driving home afterwards. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty wild to think about. You know, you spend a day at your job where you get to use another arm or <laughs> 20 right. more fingers or something like that, and then you clock out, and then you don't have those arms or fingers anymore? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's pretty yeah. strange. Well, it's like you imagine yourself, oh, I'm going to use my third arm to shift out of first gear, but there is no arm there, and so it just doesn't, and you're left just staring at it going, why, uh, why isn't this working? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's here where the research quickly turns from an academic curiosity to something with real-world implications, as we're discussing. Industrial exoskeletons or devices offering extra limbs are no longer the realm of science fiction, mm. so it's crucial we understand how our brains respond and adapt to these devices. Claude asks, what would happen if we give these devices to children or adolescents? How would augmentation impact their vastly more plastic brains? And mm-hmm. that's where it ends. So it's nice to hear that they're taking it pretty seriously in mm-hmm. terms of uh, mm-hmm. the caution side of things. I, for one, cannot wait to get a robot arm that I can plug right. into <laughs> Wi-Fi and stuff like that. I know there are people who actually have real amputation, like robotic arm replacements. So I don't mean disrespect to those people. But I want like a cool ass cyberpunk arm. That's <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, well, this article from the BBC is called The Hidden Reason Processed Pet Foods Are So Addictive. Whoa. And the short answer is, of course, chemicals that they deliberately put in there. But (laughs) the long answer is actually pretty surprising. So dog food was first invented in 1860 by a lightning rod salesman named James Spratt. Uh, uh. And he had traveled from his hometown in Ohio to Liverpool, England to sell his lightning rods. And as he was staring out over the docks one day, he noticed a group of stray dogs chowing down on some discarded hardtack biscuits. 
And this was a revelation to him for two reasons. One, hardtack is nasty. It's a basic slab of flour and water that was created to feed soldiers on the front line. Mm-hmm. And they were famously hard enough to crack a tooth on. The oldest surviving piece of hardtack is currently on display at the Kronborg Castle in Denmark, and it was baked in 1851 and shows no signs of spoiling. Hmm. So these things are basically glue, and they made (laughs) soldiers eat it, and everybody hated it, but these dogs liked it. Secondly, up until that point, no one had ever considered that dogs might have food preferences. They were just sort of culturally given scraps from whatever their humans were eating or left to fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. So Spratt went back to America and developed the meat fibrine dog cake, Ooh. which was a biscuit-like concoction of beetroot, vegetables, grains, and beef of dubious origins, the article said. <laughs> and he specifically claimed that it met all of a dog's nutritional needs in one handy package. They would never need to eat anything else. And the claim was actually a little dubious because we now know that different breeds can develop different digestive abilities based on what they're already used to eating. The most striking example is the husky, which was traditionally fed on nothing but seal meat by Inuit hunter-gatherers in Greenland and Canada. And when the British Antarctic Survey actually brought a pack of huskies down to the South Pole for their early expeditions, they initially fed them on Spratt's meat fibrine dog cakes. But the dogs got sick and couldn't ever get used to it until they ultimately gave up and went back to feeding them seal meat. So the idea that there's one food that every dog can eat, obviously false, but this was the first time they were ever sort of considering this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We've also bred generations of huskies now down to Western standards so that they can eat regular kibble. But the thing about kibble is that in the U.S. and the EU, in order to be considered a complete dog food, it has to adhere to certain standards for nutrition— which means that all the different brands are nutritionally almost identical. Quality-wise, they may vary, but a question of, like, how many carbs, how many grams of fat, whatever, it's all the same. Hmm. Human processed food isn't expected to be the one thing you eat all the time, so manufacturers can add extra fat or sugar to make their product tastier and kind of give it an edge in the marketplace, but Mm -hmm. you really can't do that with dog food. Hmm. So, instead, the pet food industry has gone all in on palatants which are basically just artificial flavorings like you find in human food. But there are some key differences in animal palatants versus human palatants. So first, animal palatants are often more about smell than taste. Obviously, most people know that dogs and cats both have a better sense of smell than we do, but the flip side is they actually have fewer taste receptors than humans do. Hmm. So some animal palatants actually have no flavor at all. They're just perfume for dog food, basically. But that can be tricky because the smells that carnivorous animals like best are things like putrescine and cadaverine, which you might be able to tell by their names, are really unpleasant smells to humans. Marion Nestle, a professor of nutrition at New York University, says pet food manufacturers have to make it disgusting enough so that the animal will eat it, but not so disgusting that the owners won't buy it. Wow. (laughs) It's a tricky balance. Yeah. Yeah. There are also some pretty striking differences between cat and dog palatants because dogs have been living side by side with humans since about 40,000 years ago, but cats were only domesticated around 4,300 years ago. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that dogs have been eating human food for a long time and have thus evolved the ability to taste various carbohydrates, including sugar. Cats, on the other hand, have not. So if you leave a donut out, A dog will definitely go for it, while a cat is much more likely to ignore it in favor of cheese or some other food that it would prefer. Mm -hmm. Cats, as well as other wild carnivores, show the most preference for umami, as well as kokumi, 
which has been proposed as a sixth flavor that's described more as a richness or a thickness in certain foods that humans are, frankly, not as good at detecting. Like, it's hard for us to describe because we can't actually taste it very well. Unlike umami and all the rest, kokumi hasn't been linked to a particular set of compounds yet, but it's believed that cats can pick it up with certain receptors in their mouths that evolved to detect calcium. And based on what flavors cats are most drawn to, they think it's highly present in scallops, soy sauce, shrimp paste, yeast, and beer. Which I've never seen a cat drink beer, but apparently they really like it. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the suspected kukumi compounds is a chemical called pyrophosphate, which is actually in a number of human foods as a preservative, but is also known in pet food circles as cat crack. They absolutely love it, and if you look at your cat food's ingredients, it is almost certainly in there. Huh. Unfortunately, we are now at the point where flavor science has gotten too good, and just like humans, there is an epidemic of pet obesity. So on the one hand, as the article points out, this is largely a problem of people choosing to feed their pets too much, since they're obviously not opening the cans themselves. On the other hand, one of the reasons pet owners feed their pets so much is because the pets are demanding food all day long which is probably due to the fact that we've made it so darn tasty for them. Mm -hmm. There's also environmental concerns to think about. One study from New Zealand estimated that the planetary cost of keeping a dog was roughly twice that of a medium-sized SUV. What? It's because they're carnivores, not that they're, like, polluting the air (laughs) as they (laughs) walk around. But the good news is that palatants can actually help that situation a lot because if the dogs are going to love it no matter what they're eating— Pets can pretty easily be transitioned onto more sustainable proteins like insects. You know, I would be interested in eating insect-based stuff if it had, you know, all the flavorings that make it better for us. Yeah, there's a company in Austin that sells cricket flour, and they even, like, have pre-made cricket flour cookies. I haven't eaten one, so I don't know if they're good, but I know they're out there at, like, you know, the hippie places. (laughs) (laughs) But not so hippie that you're vegan, because obviously insect consumption is not vegan. That's right. They do not consent to being eaten. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, the BBC is reporting that a lost village has recently emerged from an Italian lake. Oh. Oh. I was going to say Atlantis, but (laughs) Italian Atlantis, sure. Nice try. Well, the lake is called Lake Rezia if you're in Italy, or Rechenese if you're German, and I'm clearly not. It lies in South (laughs) Tyrol, the Alpine region that borders Austria and Switzerland. It's best known for the church steeple that emerges from the icy waters. Hmm. Apparently, this scene has even inspired a book and a Netflix series, which I'm kind of curious to see how they're going to blow that out into a full narrative. But (laughs) what they've done is they've temporarily drained the lake in order to do this repair work at the reservoir. So locals have been able to see the final traces of Kuran, which is a village that was once home to hundreds before it was flooded to create a hydroelectric plant. Despite the objections of its residents, the BBC is quick to note. (laughs) Yeah. When they did this, about 160 homes were submerged when they originally, you know, flooded the town. And so they've got some pictures of this lake bed that has these really ancient ruins. That's kind of depressing to think about, like, first of all, they just made this executive decision of we need to put a lake here. So all y'all got to get out. But then also, we're not even going to bulldoze the area or make it better for fish or anything. We're just going to flood it and leave it exactly as it is. (laughs) 
Although, yeah. I mean, that could, maybe the fish appreciate it. It's one of those, you know, they're not building any coral reefs in the lake. But... You know, I've seen Finding Nemo. They can do a whole lot with a shipwreck, the aquatic life, when they get into, yeah. you know, little nooks and crannies mm-hmm. and such. This is when the fish develop sentience and a whole yeah. civilization. They like, because yeah. it, it's alien technology to them. Right. They've had concrete and building designs shared with them, and now they're going to learn all our secrets. I wonder if there's been an infiltration of monkfish in the church spire. <laughs> Sorry, I was sitting on that one for a while, but the this uh, was appropriate. Thanks, Way. Oh man! Next link. <laughs> Next, Next link. link. So I'm going to read the beginning of this article first. Tardigrades are notoriously hardy. They may even survive an apocalypse that wipes out humanity. But can these hardy water bears survive being shot from a gun? <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, <laughs> not where I thought that was going. All no, right. no. Yeah. So this article comes to us from LiveScience.com, and it's titled, Tardigrades Can Survive Being Shot Out of a High-Speed Gun. Oh, Bless they went and answered hearts. it. Yeah. No. That's, that's not how you, you don't draw people in with the answer in the headline. You got to make it a question. Can tardigrades survive being shot from a gun? Should we need this yeah. answered at all? Top 10 reasons why. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, between this and Star Trek Discovery, I know they're tough, but can we give these little guys a break? Yeah, we give them a lot of abuse. Yeah. So new research has found that, yes, these hardy critters can make it out alive, but they also have a breaking point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm just imagining a sad tardigrade with his hands on his head going, I just can't take it anymore, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> In my heart. <laughs> so the new study was inspired by uncertainty about the fate of tardigrades that were aboard Israel's Bereshit probe when it crash-landed on the moon in 2019. Mm. Had the tardigrades, also called water bears, survived and contaminated Earth's lifeless companion? These hardy beasts can withstand pressures up to six times that of the deepest part of the ocean, extreme amounts of radiation, and even the vacuum of space. And in the new study, a group of researchers at the University of Kent in the UK decided to test if tardigrades could also survive high-speed impacts. (laughs) To do this, they fed the tardigrades and then tucked them into bed. That is, they froze the creatures. Okay, that just sounds straight up cruel. Like, before you shoot them out of a gun, you get a last meal in a comfy bed. This This is unethical. I have issues. Yeah, but the bed is a euphemism. What they actually did is they froze the creatures into a hibernation mode uh-huh. called the tun state, in which their metabolism decreases to 0.1% of their normal rate. Wow. And then the researchers fired the critters at different speeds, of course, out of a two-stage light gas gun, which shoots objects at the higher speeds than a typical gun. <laughs> and they found that the tardigrades could survive impact of nearly 900 meters per second. Uh, let me get that in freedom units for you. <laughs> which is about 3,000 feet per second, uh-huh. which would result in about 1.14 gigapascals of pressure upon impact. I don't really I, have a real frame of reference yeah. for that, but it's a lot, obviously. That's 1.21 gigawatts. Like, that doesn't mean anything. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> However, the tardigrades did perish at higher pressures and impact speeds. So 
That means that the tardigrades aboard the, the Barashit probe, which would have experienced a shock pressure above that level when it crashed, would not have survived. Mm. Even the tardigrades that did survive low and moderate speed impacts took longer than control samples, uh, which were just re- frozen and revived from the tun state, <laughs> to recover, which suggests that a degree of internal damage has to be overcome, the authors wrote. Mm. It's not clear whether the surviving tardigrades could later reproduce, and the authors also noted that the testing, whether tardigrade eggs could survive being shot out of guns to later develop would also be a fruitful area of study. So the study has implications for a theory known as panspermia, which holds that life could have traveled between worlds on meteorites after being ejected from asteroids that crashed into planets or moons. The study shows that panspermia is difficult, but not impossible. And of course, these findings apply only to tardigrades. Other life forms, such as microbes, may survive at higher impact speeds, and plenty of others will not. Yes. Um, (laughs) The research could also have implications for detecting life on other planets. Uh, Spacecraft that pass near the icy plumes of water worlds, such as Jupiter's moon Europa and Saturn's moon Enceladus, may be able to collect potential life forms with the same hardiness as tardigrades from ejected plumes without killing them. So pretty interesting uh, science experiment where we took these little okay. Yes, water we bear all beads. heard about it. That's I'm still horrified. And yes, <laughs> I understand the value of you know lending some credence to this panspermia theory. But like, does it have to be an episode of Felicity where we just put them through like the worst traumas imaginable in order to <laughs> determine their strength? I guess so. Yeah, you know they build character. Now they can say, like, I've survived this. I'm cooler Mm. than all the other water bears. You're right. Thanks, Dad. It does build character. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, I got got Jennifer to laugh cough, so that's a win for me today. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This next article from The Atlantic is called The Body's Most Embarrassing Organ is an Evolutionary Marvel. And before anyone jumps in with any guesses, I'm just going to cut to the chase and say we're talking about butts. Oh. Oh, yeah. And it has occurred to me that I also had an article last week about butts, but I promise this doesn't reflect on me as a person. I'm just reading the articles as they come up. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is, of course, a little bit of a risque topic, right? As Rebecca Helm, a jellyfish biologist at the University of North Carolina, notes, the moment you say anus, you can hear a pin drop in the room. (laughs) (laughs) But in fact, she believes this bodily taboo has led to a bit of a scientific blind spot that has prevented us from understanding a fundamental aspect of our own biology. Yeah. So the earliest creatures didn't actually have a digestive tract, so to speak, with a separate mouth and butt. They had more of a digestive sac that they would pull food into and then expel the unnecessary bits back out through the same opening. Mm. And separating the two actually was a pretty momentous development in evolution because it meant that different parts of the body could specialize and become more efficient at their jobs. And creatures didn't have to wait for their first meal to finish before they ate another one. So this allowed these new tube-shaped bodies to consume more nutrients and grow dramatically in size and function. Mm. And unfortunately, it's really hard to tell from the fossil record when this moment happened, because by definition, we're talking about soft, fleshy bits instead of bones. Like if an alien found a human skeleton, they could pretty clearly see the teeth and say, "Okay, food goes in there. And they might even look at the big hole in the center of the pelvis and conclude that babies have to fit out through there. 
But they wouldn't necessarily know for sure whether our food comes out at the bottom or back out the top or, in fact, somewhere else entirely. Yeah. Because there is a species of polyclad flatworm, for example, whose digestion actually branches out into dozens of exit points like, and I quote, feces spewing freckles. Wow. (laughs) Three words I never would have put together. Yeah. So basically, when it comes to the evolutionary origin of butts, we're making it up. We really don't know. But one of the theories is that this one big mouth hole in the early undersea invertebrates got bigger and bigger until it started to sort of sag in the middle, which then fused and turned it into a one-way tube. But Andreas Hainol, a developmental biologist at the University of Bergen in Norway, says that animals usually express different genes at the two different ends of the body, which makes it less likely that they came from a single developmental place. Hmm. Instead, he thinks... The original hole stayed the mouth, and a new hole got punched out the back. He also thinks that this process was so inherently helpful for advancement and survival that different animals had developed them independently at different times in different ways. As evidence, he points to brittle stars and mites, both of which have actually lost waste openings over time as they became less useful in their current environment. Hmm. But there have been a few recent breakthroughs. Regardless of how it happened, the general agreement had been that anuses developed around 550 million years ago. But then, in 2016, a team of researchers led by William Brown of the University of Miami captured, for the first time, a comb jelly defecating on camera. Oh! Yeah. The article describes a comb jelly as a translucent Darth Vader helmet. And more importantly, it's a really ancient creature that's known to go back as far as 700 million years. So that would obviously put the beginning of defecation much earlier than we had thought. Hmm. And when a video clip of the comb jelly pooping debuted at a conference, quote, everyone in the hall audibly gasped, according to Helm, (laughs) the jellyfish biologist. Which is just a really beautiful image. They're like, all right, we're going to play something amazing. And they click play and it's all bleh. And then like, (gasps) everybody understands the implications. Meanwhile, more advanced creatures have gone on to use their butts in numerous non-waste-based functions. Turtles and sea cucumbers can breathe through their butts. Young dragonflies suck water into theirs, then spew it out to propel themselves forward. What? (laughs) Yes. Scorpions jettison their entire posterior when they're attacked from behind, evading capture but tragically losing their ability to poop and eventually dying from it. And lacewing larvae incapacitate their termite prey with toxic flatulence, which one entomologist formally referred to as death farts. (laughs) Scientific name. (laughs) And then, of course, there are cloacae, which are popular among birds and reptiles and amphibians, which Mm -hmm. combine digestive, urinary, and reproductive functions all into one opening. And on the one hand, there's some pretty strong evolutionary reasons to avoid that, like contamination and infection. But on the other, it means that female birds with an unsatisfactory mate can willfully eject the other bird's contribution and prevent fertilization. So it has Mm. benefits as well. Mm -hmm. And I always think back to people talking about like, oh, eggs, why would you eat something that has come out of a chicken's butt? And my initial reaction at the time was always, it's not their butt. It's a different hole. But it isn't. It really is their butt that the egg comes out of. So think about that next time you're having breakfast. (laughs) But all of this ultimately leads most researchers to conclude that human anuses, by comparison, are actually pretty boring. What's much more fascinating about us, they say, is our gluteus maximus, 
Humans have the most voluminous rear ends of any creature in history, and it serves us in two ways. One, it contributed to our ability to walk upright, having all those extra muscles back there. And two, it acts as a major source of fat storage and energy reserves that only the camel comes close to duplicating. Nice. Our dominance yeah, uh, nice. summed up in a butt. And they did have the obligatory, uh, I like big butts and I cannot lie, joke inside the article, nice. which I will not repeat here. But it was there. <laughs> we all thought it. You I mean, go check it out for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, LifeScience.com is back at it asking the hard questions. Do animals laugh? I think mm. they do, but my <laughs> husband is very against the idea. He like I think our dogs Ooh. smile. I think our dogs have happy expressions, and he's like, no. Your dog doesn't feel emotions. He loves you because you feed him. The only reason he's smiling is because you've taught him to smile. Like, that's the reaction you make. So he's like, feed me if I make this face. Uh, yeah, we, it's an ongoing discussion in our household. Well, maybe Live Science in this article can join the two of you together because somewhere in the middle lies the real answer as it is carefully phrased in that animal vocalizations made during play are a close analog to human laughter. Uh, <laughs> so, I, don't, I don't like this gray area stuff. I want science that proves me right. That's what I want. <laughs> well, the article only goes into it thus far, right? So we all know <laughs> laughing together is how humans connect and bond. The sound of a laugh is usually recognizable across different cultures. But what about animals, right? And do the causes of their laughter resemble the triggers for human laughter? Because for humans, when we laugh, we can do it for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. positive feelings being one of them. But we can also laugh out of disgust, right? Sure. Like uncomfortably during somebody's horribly non-sensitive stand-up routine, right? Like it can be, <laughs> we're not actually validating right. it with like, I enjoyed this, but more like, you made me uncomfortable. I got to break the tension. Right. There's a danger, danger aspect to it of like, I'm scared <laughs> of you now. I need to dissipate the tension to get out of here. Exactly. Exactly. So those are pretty well studied when it comes to humans. But when it comes to animals, we have found that many of them will produce sounds during play that are unique to that pleasant social interactions. And so researchers identified 65 species that quote unquote laugh while playing. Most of them were mammals, but there were a few bird species that demonstrated playful laughter as well. And so they're hoping this new analysis can help scientists trace the evolutionary origins of human laughter because it's all got to come back around to us, right? <laughs> some of the challenges here are that, you know, some types of behavior may look like fighting with animals. And so animals may mm -hmm. vocalize or laugh during play to keep these kinds of interactions from escalating and becoming aggressive or harmful. Unlike fighting, play is usually repetitive and it happens independently of other social behaviors like mating or searching for food. Sasha Winkler, a doctoral candidate of biological anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, said people who study primates will say, you know it when you see it. <laughs> Very scientific, right? <laughs> uh, one sign mm -hmm. is that primates, who are obviously humans' closest species relatives, have a play face that kind of resembles the expression of humans who are playing. She also previously worked with rhesus macaque monkeys, and she noticed that the monkeys panted quietly while they were playing. We've also recently understood that rats can have kind of an ultrasonic trill, like when they're being tickled. And although most of the laughing animals were mammals, they identified the Australian magpie and the kea parrot, the two bird species that also vocalize during play. 
Actually, in a 2017 study of the Kia parrots, scientists found that if they recorded their warbling laughter and played it through a speaker, some of the other birds would spontaneously start playing. So it was kind of like a sitcom. They cue、mm. the laughter. <laughs> right. <laughs> Reports of playful laughter were notably absent in studies describing fish, amphibians, and reptiles. <laughs> perhaps because there is some question as to whether or not play exists at all in those animal groups, according to the study.、Mm. But laughter in humans is thought to have originated during play, and this is a hypothesis supported by the play-related panting laughter of many primate species. We're thinking that human laughter may have evolved from a similar panting sound that, over evolutionary time, became ritualized into the vocalized ha 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 that we use today. Maybe not as <laughs> no exactly like that. That's what it sounds like when I laugh. Only <laughs> there is that one I think British comedian who does the ha ha ha. That's like so. Oh yeah, it's a、uh, Jimmy Carr. Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly who it is.、Yep. And I can always recognize when he's on a panel because it is such a distinct laugh that just sounds、yep. fake. But anyway, bit of. A Tangent. Another way that human laughter differs notably from other animals' laughter is with volume. People tend to broadcast their laughter loudly, often as a way to establish inclusion in a group. So the original virtue signaling, I suppose. <laughs> But right, when right. other animals laugh, the sound tends to be pretty quiet, just loud enough to be heard by the laugher's partner. Yeah, they've got the laugh's ancestor. Just like the dog can't necessarily use a tool, but it can <laughs> understand if I paw at this gate enough, I can get the latch undone. Yeah, it's like it, proto it's, laughter. You know, <laughs> exactly. So. I'm right, is what I'm going. <laughs> I support you 100. Absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Settle in. We've got a little bit of an intense one. This article comes to us from theguardian.com, and it's titled "Second Bite Is One That Broke the Bones." Alaska man describes bear mauling. <gasps> If he、yeah. described it, I guess he lived. So that's、yeah. good. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>、uh, sorry to spoil it, but yeah. <laughs> so. Alan Minish was alone and surveying land for a real estate agent in a wooded, remote part of Alaska when he looked up and saw a large brown bear walking about 30 feet away. Minish said by phone on Wednesday from his hospital bed in Anchorage, <laughs> "I saw him and he saw me at the same time." The attack left Minish with a crushed jaw and a puncture wound in his scalp so deep that the doctor said he could see bone. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Minish startled the bear on Tuesday morning just off the Richardson Highway near the small community of Golkana, about 190 miles northeast of Anchorage. The bear, which Minish said was larger than the 300-pound black bears he had seen before, charged and closed the ground between them in a few seconds. <gasps> Minish tried to dodge behind small spruce trees, but that didn't stop the bear. Minish held up the pointed end of his surveying pole and pushed it toward the bear to keep it away from him, which simply knocked it to the side. And the force of the blow knocked Minish to the ground.、Hmm. He said, "As he lunged up on top of me, I grabbed his lower jaw to pull him away, but he tossed me aside there, grabbed a quarter of my face." <gasps> yeah, he took a small bite, and then he took a second bite, <laughs> and the second bite is the one that broke the bones and crushed my right cheek, basically. Ooh! And finally, when the bear let go, Minish turned his face to the ground and put his hands over the head, and then the bear just walked away. <laughs> He's just teaching him a lesson. Yeah, I mean,、Holy、really, like、cow. Minish surmises the bear left because he no longer perceived him as a threat,、mm. and the bear's exit gave him time to assess the damage. 
Minish said, I realized I was in pretty bad shape because I had all this blood everywhere. And also, I would say, you know, his head was in a bear jaw, probably part of that. I don't think you get out of that with less than horrible, horrible injuries. Yeah. And he called 911 on his cell phone. And when talking to a dispatcher, he pulled off his surveyor's vest and his T-shirt and wrapped them around his head in an attempt to stop the bleeding. Then he waited for 59 minutes for help to arrive. (gasps) Oh, Because, you know, it's Alaska, right? Yeah, yeah. it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and he says he knows that's how long it took because he later checked his cell phone record for the length of time he was told to stay on the line with the dispatcher until rescue arrived. Minish said he was worried about the bear returning to finish the job. And he kept hearing stuff. But every time Minish tried to lean up to look around, he got dizzy from his blood loss. Oh, yeah. So he didn't come back. So I just lay there and worried about it. Uh, (laughs) Minish is 61 years old. What? Yeah. And he's had his share of bear encounters over the 40 years he's lived in Alaska, but nothing like this. And he had left his gun in the vehicle on the job, but said it wouldn't have mattered at all because the bear moved on him too fast for it to have been any use. Hmm. And Minish can now add his name to the list of six people he knows who have been mauled by bears in Alaska. Uh, Wow. Yeah. And the article ends with this incredible line from him. In all honesty, it wouldn't have mattered either way. You know, if it killed me, it killed me. I had a good life. I'm moving on. It didn't kill me, so now let's move on to the other direction of trying to stay alive. I mean, I guess that's the kind of attitude you have to have if you're going to be a surveyor in rural Alaska where bears are wandering around. I mean, better him than me. That's awesome. I'm glad he's got the right attitude. (laughs) Yeah, his mental game is on point. Yeah, (laughs) right? And this makes me think of a recent poll I saw going around Twitter where something like 35% of men think they could take a black bear in a fight. (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? (laughs) It's almost like they're overconfident with all that testosterone or something. Who knew? Yeah, I think bears have a lot more testosterone, though. (laughs) I don't know. Do bears have testosterone? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that at least is like a steady pool of recruits when this surveying job opens up because the last 61 year old got eaten by a bear. There's 35% of men out there who are like, I could sign up for that job. We need need dumb people. It's true. It's true. (laughs) Not that Minish sounds dumb. He seems like a very competent person just got the bad end of the bear this time. That's right. That's why he lived. We meant to say brave. Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right, well, we got a short one here. It's called A Medieval Victim Still in His Chainmail Discovered in Sweden. And the title is a little misleading because it makes it sound like we just discovered this. But actually, we discovered it in the late 1920s. So it's really more like, here's some cool stuff that's currently in a museum in Sweden. You should check it out. Okay. But it is (laughs) very cool stuff. So we'll give it a pass, I guess. Uh, (laughs) The other thing that's misleading is the title mentions one medieval victim when actually there are around 1,100 of them. Oh, wow. They were all buried in a handful of mass graves after the Battle of Visby in 1361. And Visby was a thriving trade city on the Isle of Gotland, which lies off the coast of Sweden. And it's sort of right in the middle of the Baltic Sea, surrounded by all these different countries where we have present day Lithuania and Poland and Germany and Denmark. So during the Middle Ages, it was a really critical stop. And at the time, it was protected by a confederation of merchant towns called the Hanseatic League. Just like a union, basically. They all sort of agreed independently of their countries. We're all merchant towns. We're going to stick together. Hmm. And because the Hanseatic League wasn't aligned with any particular country, it was seen as a threat by a lot of particular countries. Hmm. In particular, the Danish king, Valdemar IV, 
decided he was going to knock him down a few pegs by taking Visby. The article notes that, in addition, it is rumored that the inhabitants of the town sang drinking songs mocking the Danish king, thus causing him to hold a personal vendetta against them. Mm-hmm. You got to be careful with your pub songs, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, at the end of the day, these guys were merchants. So Valdemar arrives with around 2,000 to 2,500 trained soldiers, and Visby steps outside their city gates with about 2,000 locals, around a third of whom were elderly, children, or disabled. Which we know because we can analyze their skeletons because Visby lost badly. Ooh. And because their armor and their weapons were all sort of piecemeal and substandard, Valdemar's soldiers didn't bother taking any of it off them. They just buried them exactly as they were. Which is cool for us because now we've got all these perfectly preserved gauntlets and skeletons with spears still sticking out of them. And, of course, the article has a bunch of great pictures, which you should go look at if you're not squeamish about head injuries. If you are, I'm pretty sure you turned us off after the last article anyway. (laughs) And and that's about it. There's just some really cool stuff in a Swedish museum. And if you ever go, you should uh, check it out. I am a little bit skeptical. I say they can't prove that it wasn't an Army of the Dead situation where these things were skeletons before they died. Mm-hmm. But I guess we'll just have to trust science on that. That's true. And I mean, <laughs> given the king's name, Voldemar, I mean, yeah. total necromancer name. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think he raised an army of the dead and somehow they lost. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Mafia Muscle, the fight to save a mollusk from the mob. This fuzzy image shows a spiral forming soon after the Big Bang. And why is ice slippery? It's not a simple question. So all that and more can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and appreciate the fact that we do not foist ads upon you, you can support us at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.